0: With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Haley smiled as she strolled around her grandmother's backyard, mingling with the crowd at the family barbecue. Her uncles were bickering among themselves, her aunts were gossiping in the corner, and her younger cousins were chasing each other around, shrieking with delight. All the chaos was oddly comforting, but it was also a bit overwhelming. Haley decided she needed a rest from her family. The 14-year-old walked around the side of the house to a quiet part of the yard. Just as she was about to breathe a sigh of relief, she heard a noise behind her. She rolled her eyes and turned to see Matt Baker following her. Her stomach churned at the sight of his smile. Matt wasn't intimidating exactly. His big eyes and round face made him look like an overgrown kid, and at 5'7, he was barely taller than Haley. Even so, there was something creepy about her cousin's husband. He didn't smile, he leered. Haley didn't understand why her cousin Carrie was with him. Haley quickly turned back around and tried to ignore Matt, but he edged closer to her and spoke softly in her ear. He asked her whether she was wearing any underwear under her skirt. Haley froze, feeling her skin crawl. She couldn't seem to find her voice to tell him off. Instead, she just ignored him until he finally left her alone. After all, Matt was family. What else could she do? Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences, but in this show we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This week, we'll talk about Texas Baptist preacher Matt Baker and his wife Carrie. Carrie thought she'd married a decent Christian man, the perfect person to start a family with but Carrie didn't realize that Matt was a predator with a decade-long history of sexually harassing and assaulting young women. When Carrie started to suspect the truth, Matt searched for a way out of his marriage. Next week, we'll discuss the tragedy that was initially overlooked by the authorities. We'll also talk about how the Waco community eventually mobilized to uncover the dark truth. Matthew Baker seemed to have grown up in a chaotic household. His parents, Barbara and Oscar, operated a group home for foster children in his hometown of Kerrville, Texas, about an hour northwest of San Antonio. Matt described the environment as warm and comforting, saying, I learned Christian love. We were all brothers and sisters. When they were in our house, they were family. But some of his foster siblings told a different story. Decades later, a number of women came forward and said Matt's parents were abusive. They recalled incidents in which Matt's father, Oscar, groped and sexually assaulted them. One woman described Barbara as very harsh with her words, very degrading, she used to belittle people and make them feel inadequate and wrong. Barbara allegedly encouraged some of the foster children to make fun of others with mental and physical handicaps but Matt refused to accept these accusations against his parents and denied any abuse. Perhaps his parents treated their biological children differently from the others. His mother later described him as exceptionally well-behaved saying, I can honestly say I can't remember ever punishing Matt. That's hard to believe, I know, but it's true. When Matt graduated from high school in 1990, Most people probably would have agreed with his mother's assessment. He had a spotless reputation and received a partial scholarship to Baylor University in Waco, Texas. There, he majored in church recreation and specialized in athletic training. But beneath the wholesome exterior, Matt was hiding a predatory aggression. As part of his studies, he worked as a trainer with the university's football team. During his sophomore year, he met a young woman named Laura Wilson, another student in the same athletic training program. One afternoon, Laura was assigned to clean one of the student locker rooms, and Matt offered to help. Matt made her feel uncomfortable right away. She said his behavior started out as simply obnoxious. He continually poked her with his broom. She repeatedly asked him to stop, and he finally did. But moments later, he cornered her in a stall. Laura said that Matt picked her up and dragged her over to a bench. He forced her onto his lap and groped her between her legs. She screamed and fought, but he ignored her. After a few minutes, he let her go. She later said, he didn't stop with the touching until he was ready to stop. Till he had gotten whatever it is he got. Then he left the locker room. Laura was left in shock. Afterward, she reported the incident to the head athletic trainer, who promised her that he would take care of the matter. But Laura later discovered that Matt had merely been banned from extracurricular activities. Not only that, but he'd started rumors about Laura, calling her a liar. Many of Laura's classmates took his side over hers. Her mental health suffered, both from the attack and the bullying she endured because of it. She ultimately dropped out of Baylor. This wasn't the only accusation against Matt Baker at the time. Just weeks after attacking Laura while he was visiting his home in Kerrville, he attended a party with his ex-girlfriend from high school, Dina Ahrens. Dina and Matt hung out at the party, and afterward, he came home with her. Her parents were out for the night. Once they were inside the house, Matt began kissing and groping Dina without her consent. Although they had dated before, Matt suddenly seemed different, more aggressive. Dina recalled, I remember having to use all my strength to keep him from taking my clothes off me. He only stopped when they heard her mother return home. Dina was unsettled by the encounter, but she ultimately brushed it off. Matt got away clean. In the spring of 1992, the 20-year-old returned to Baylor for a new semester. Instead of facing discipline for any of his actions, he was given more opportunities. One of his church recreation teachers, Jake Roberts, offered him a job at the First Baptist Church of Waco. Jake reportedly later said, If I'd known about what happened at Baylor with that girl, I wouldn't have hired him. Absolutely not. But I didn't. No one told me. As part of his duties at First Baptist, Matt helped run the church's youth summer camp, In the summer of 1994, a 19-year-old woman named Carrie Doolin was hired as a camp lifeguard. Carrie was a vivacious, outgoing young woman. She had just completed her freshman year at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, but she had decided to leave and come back home to her family in Waco after her first year. She felt there were too many parties and temptations at Texas Tech, She also thought that by being close to the religious Baylor University, she might have a better chance at meeting a nice Christian guy to date and eventually marry. When Carrie met Matt Baker, a rising senior at Baylor and church employee, she thought she'd found exactly the man she was looking for. A classmate said, we were Baptist girls looking for the right man to settle down with, and Matt talked a lot about faith, He sounded like a good boy, active in church, and that was very appealing. Before I continue with Carrie's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Sociologist Stacey Keogh-George conducted a survey at a small Christian college and found students were under immense pressure to get engaged before they graduate. Professor George wrote, The tagline, Ring by Spring, signifies the tongue-in-cheek ambition of many traditional Christian college and university students to be engaged by the spring semester of their senior year. While students and faculty may joke about the marriage-obsessed culture, it dispenses a social-psychological burden that follows students, particularly women, throughout their undergraduate experience. Carrie's eagerness to settle down led her to pursue Matt, and he responded in kind. They began leaving work at the same time each night and arriving together in the mornings. Matt made regular appearances at Carrie's family dinners and parties and brought Carrie back to Kerrville to meet his own parents. The meetings were cordial, but neither the Doolans nor the Bakers were thrilled with the couple. They all thought their kids were moving too fast, but Matt and Carrie didn't care. By midsummer, they were engaged. Carrie's parents threatened to withhold her school tuition if she went through with the wedding, but she insisted that Matt was the right man for her. She didn't want to wait. On August 20th, 1994, just a few months after meeting, 22-year-old Matt Baker and 20-year-old Carrie Doolin were married. Carrie may have sincerely believed that Matt was the clean-cut young man he claimed to be, She likely didn't know about Laura Wilson's accusations against him. But Matt's predatory behavior continued even at the First Baptist Church of Waco, where he and Carrie worked. The same summer Matt and Carrie began their relationship, Matt allegedly pestered a teenage girl for sex. She reported his behavior, but it came to nothing. Matt's boss, Jake Roberts said, "'It was a he said, she said situation. I told him he needed to be more careful to not be alone with the teenage girls who worked at the camp. Later that summer, he reportedly sexually propositioned a custodian as well. She told her boss, but Matt continued to deny these allegations. Because a woman had no proof, Matt was allowed to continue to work at the church. Eventually, Carrie heard about these accusations, but instead of having second thoughts about her husband, she became defensive. She complained to her parents that women at work were flirting with Matt and then accusing him of sexual harassment as revenge when he rejected them. The vicious rumors infuriated Carrie. She dug her nails into her palm as she stormed out of her parents' house. How could these women say horrible things about Matt? He lived a clean, wholesome life, committed to God, and when Carrie looked into his eyes, she saw only love and tenderness. Carrie wondered, could these women be jealous? Maybe they struggled to live virtuously themselves and couldn't handle seeing her and Matt succeed. Carrie continued to fume as she started her car and made the journey home. She caught herself speeding and forced herself to slow down. She didn't understand what was going on with her, but she was realizing that being married was harder than she thought not because of Matt, but because so many people around them seemed to want them to fail. Carrie couldn't let them win. Her marriage had to be a success. She had to prove that dirty tricks and lies would never bring them down. She'd show everyone, friends and enemies alike, that love always won in the end. Carrie's parents saw how the accusations tore her up inside, Though they had initially been wary of the relationship, now that Matt and Carrie were married, they tried to support their son-in-law. Carrie's mother, Linda, later said, We thought if he'd truly done these things, he'd certainly be fired. When that didn't happen, we believed him. Though Matt was never fired, he did turn in his resignation in the fall of 1995. He graduated from Baylor at the end of the fall semester and took a job at the Family Y, directing the children's after-school program. In January of 1996, a few months after he'd started the job, a co-worker claimed he groped her, tried to kiss her and forced her to touch his genitals. However, she didn't report this incident at the time. Carrie remained unaware of her husband's behavior. By then, she was pregnant with their first child. On April 22, 1996, she gave birth to their daughter, Kenzie. Over the next few months, while Carrie devoted herself to the new baby, 24-year-old Matt's pattern of abusive behavior escalated. In June of 1996, three teenage girls at the Y filed reports against him, claiming he was pressuring them to have sex. When they came forward, the other coworker he'd assaulted also told her story. Matt was immediately terminated from his position. He told Carrie that he'd only been trying to give counseling to the young women and they'd misinterpreted him. Carrie believed him. Around her, he was gentle, even timid. Family members described her as the alpha in the relationship. Carrie couldn't picture her mild-mannered husband attacking anyone. Even if Carrie doubted his explanation, she couldn't bring herself to say it out loud. She may have felt that questioning Matt went against her faith. One of the passages she highlighted in her Bible included the verse, Wives, submit to your own husband, ask to the Lord. This was something Carrie felt she needed to work on. Perhaps she thought the verse required her to remain loyal to Matt, no matter what anybody else said. Left without a job, Matt started a new path. He enrolled in Baylor Seminary School with the goal of becoming a minister. Carrie too enrolled in the undergraduate school to finish her degree in education. Whatever happened in the past, she was determined to ignore it. She remained committed to Matt and their life together. Unfortunately for Carrie, Matt was equally determined to continue victimizing the women around him. Up next, Matt hides his secret life from Carrie as a couple suffers an unimaginable tragedy.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting
1: to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
0: This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get fifteen percent cash back at hundreds of stores, including Headliners, Ulta, Ray Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in the no shoppers get the best savings. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to racketon.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
1: Now, back to the story. By the fall of 1996, 25-year-old Matt Baker and his wife, 22-year-old Carrie, had been married for over two years. Carrie had just given birth to a new baby girl, Though the family looked to be on the right track in many ways, Matt was still a stranger to Carrie. He was a sexual predator who had assaulted several women at work and school, but no matter how many of his victims came forward, Carrie couldn't or wouldn't accept the truth. It didn't help that Matt always seemed to get away with his behavior, facing few consequences. For example, A teenage girl who lived in the house behind Matt and Carrie's told her mother that Matt had asked her if she'd ever kissed a boy. He then grabbed her and forcefully kissed her himself. But the girl's mother didn't know whether to believe her. She thought the girl might be exaggerating, so nothing came of the assault. By 1997, Matt had been fired from one job for his predation, but no criminal charges had ever been brought against him. In November of that year, his first victim from Baylor University, Laura Wilson, decided to file a police report. It had been six years, but she still suffered from nightmares and trauma from the incident. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations had passed. So again, nothing came of it. Around that same time on November 20th, Carrie gave birth to a second daughter, Cassidy. Carrie was elated with the new baby. With Matt and the two girls, she had the family she'd always wanted. It seemed the bakers were blessed by God. The following spring, Matt was hired as a pastor at Williams Creek Baptist, just outside of Waco. He and Carrie were warmly welcomed by the small town, although reactions to his preaching style were mixed. Matt often referenced modern life and pop culture in his sermons to the point where some of the older congregants complained that he didn't preach enough from the Bible. But the style resonated with the younger members of the church. His tone was more relaxed and less reproachful than the Baptist ministers they were used to. He preferred to focus on love, acceptance, and forgiveness rather than sin. In his sermons, he emphasized, it does not matter about our past jesus takes us into his family while matt led the congregation at the pulpit carrie took on an active role in the church as well she led the youth group taught bible study and counseled teenagers the family thrived but around november of 1998 tragedy struck just after cassidy's first birthday the girl fell ill she couldn't keep down food or fluids She was initially diagnosed with a stomach bug, but when she didn't improve, Matt and Carrie took her to the hospital. There, the girl had a seizure. An MRI revealed that the toddler had a brain tumor. Cassidy was transferred to a children's hospital and rushed to the operating room. Surgeons warned the bakers that surgery would be risky. They weren't certain whether Cassidy would survive it. Hours later, doctors managed to remove the tumor but the girl remained in critical condition. She had developed pulmonary edema and required a respirator to breathe. Doctors induced a coma to give the child a chance to fight for her life. Carrie was devastated for her baby. She wrote in her journal, "'It is so hard to understand why this happened, "'but all I do is pray. "'Matt is being so strong. "'He is so solid. As usual, Carrie looked at her husband and saw only the best in him. His flaws were invisible to her. But despite the fact that his child was lying in a hospital bed, gravely ill, Matt's thoughts weren't on his daughter. Instead, he was searching for his next victim. In January of 1998, Carrie's cousin Lindsay came to the hospital to visit baby Cassidy she brought a friend, 20-year-old Aaron Calverly, with her. While Lindsay and Carrie were in Cassidy's room, Aaron waited in the hospital game room, chatting with some of the younger patients. Matt wandered in and found her there. Aaron told Matt how sorry she was that his daughter was sick. He responded by calling her beautiful and stroking her thigh. He then told her the hospital had given them a private room to stay in during Cassidy's recovery and asked if she'd like to see it. Erin was horrified. All she could think to do was move away from Matt until Carrie and Lindsay returned. When Erin told Lindsay about the encounter, Lindsay wasn't surprised. Many members of Carrie's family thought Matt was creepy. They just didn't know how to tell Carrie. With Cassidy sick, She had enough to worry about, so the family kept quiet. Over the next month, the toddler's condition improved, enough that in late February she was cleared to return home. She still required tubes to assist with her breathing and eating, but her parents learned to clean and care for them at home. They also hired a nurse to help them during the day. At night, Cassidy wore a monitor that sounded an alarm if her breathing stopped, Her family took every precaution to keep their baby healthy, and doctors were optimistic about her recovery. But on the night of March 21st, 1999, that all changed. Around midnight, Matt went in to check on the girls to make sure they were sleeping, then returned to tell Carrie they were fine. But less than 10 minutes later, he decided to check on them again. According to Matt, That's when he discovered that Cassidy wasn't breathing. For whatever reason, they hadn't turned on her breathing monitor that night. Carrie later told family members that Matt didn't think the toddler needed it. Matt called for Carrie to call 911 and he began performing CPR on his daughter. When an ambulance arrived, first responders rushed the child to the hospital, but doctors couldn't revive Cassidy. She died early that morning, March 22nd. For Carrie, the grief was overwhelming. At the funeral, her parents had to physically support her so she could walk to her child's grave. But many other members of the family were shocked at Matt's reaction. He didn't seem upset at all. Carrie's aunt, Nancy, later said, "'You don't have to cry, but it didn't seem right that he walked around like it was any other day.' As people gave their condolences, it looked like Matt enjoyed the attention. Carrie may have overlooked some of Matt's behavior in the past, but his non-reaction to their daughter's death finally caught her attention. Matt didn't seem to feel any pain at all. He returned to work as minister of his church just a week after Cassidy's funeral. Carrie couldn't understand it. Unfortunately, marital problems are common following the death of a child. One 1987 study by authors Darren Lehman, Camille Wartman, and Alan Williams found that divorce rate among bereaved parents was as high as eight times the norm. Another 1991 study by John Dufresne, a professor of family and community development at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, found that a grieving parent may indirectly blame his or her spouse for their child's death as a way of dealing with the pain. Carrie asked a friend, Why is it tearing me apart and Matt's acting like nothing happened? She even wondered if Matt was relieved that Cassidy was gone. It almost seemed like he had viewed her illness as an inconvenience and was happy that things could finally get back to normal. In her journal entries, Carrie wrote letters to her late daughter. In one, she pleaded, help me fall in love with your daddy again. Carrie sat at the table and stared down at her journal. She felt lost at sea. Just getting out of bed each morning seemed impossible. It wasn't just the grief, it was the loneliness. She felt so completely alone. She and Matt were supposed to be in this together. Both of them had lost their child, but it seemed the burden fell entirely on Carrie's shoulders. Matt seemed a world away, like he'd already moved on to some happier future. She couldn't catch up to him, and she didn't want to, not if it meant letting go of her daughter. Carrie pushed away from the table and began to pace back and forth. Perhaps she was being too hard on Matt. Maybe he was just trying to keep the family functioning. Maybe she wasn't being fair. The pain might be unbearable for him too, and he just didn't know how to show it. Carrie clung to that thought. It had to be the truth. The idea that they'd lost Cassidy and he'd simply moved past it was too cruel to believe. Carrie's feelings were conflicted, but as always, she wanted her marriage to work. She tried to steer her life in a positive direction. In November of 1999, about eight months after Cassidy's death, Carrie told friends that she was pregnant again. In May of the year 2000, she graduated from Baylor University with her degree in education. On July 18th, she gave birth to her third daughter, Grace. Despite these welcome changes, Carrie, now 26 years old, still struggled with anxiety and grief over Cassidy's death. That fall, her doctor prescribed her Ambien to help her sleep. After trying it, Carrie decided she didn't like the way the drug made her feel and never refilled the prescription. Instead, she purchased a mild over-the-counter sleep aid, a generic version of the drug Unisom. But other worries plagued her. At one point, Carrie discovered that their bank account was overdrawn due to phone sex and pornography website charges. Matt told her their debit card had been stolen. Whatever other troubles they had in their marriage, Carrie still trusted Matt and accepted his excuse. Carrie wasn't prepared to confront that possibility that he was capable of lying to her face. So she did her best to move on, Meanwhile, Matt had trouble securing a permanent minister position over the next few years. The family moved often as Matt bounced around from church to church. Even when he wasn't being accused of harassing women, he seemed to rub many congregants the wrong way. One of his former church members said he was arrogant. Another claimed he'd caught Matt brazenly lying on several occasions. Everywhere he went, Matt seemed to cause problems, but Carrie still couldn't face that reality. Carrie's Aunt Nancy said, bless Carrie's heart. She just wanted to believe in Matt. She defended him through thick and thin. In 2005, the family returned to Waco. Now 31, Carrie took a job teaching the third grade at the nearby elementary school. 34-year-old Matt found a position as a chaplain with the Waco Center for Youth, a detention center for teenagers with behavioral problems. A few months later, he was also hired to lead the congregation at Crossroad Baptist Church in Lorena, a suburb of Waco. Just like always, Carrie was Matt's biggest cheerleader. She encouraged co-workers and friends to join the small Crossroads Church. She was proud that he'd found a new flock. Of course, Matt was anything but a noble shepherd, He soon became interested in one of his new church members, a 23-year-old woman named Vanessa Bowles. Vanessa was recently divorced with an infant daughter, Lily. Carrie had a soft spot for Vanessa and Lily because she thought Vanessa's baby looked like her own lost child, Cassidy. She mentioned the resemblance to more than one friend throughout the fall of 2005. Carrie didn't realize that Matt had noticed Vanessa too. And his feelings were anything but innocent. Coming up, Matt has an affair with deadly consequences.
0: Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized.
1: Now, back to the story. 31-year-old Carrie Baker had endured the devastating loss of her young daughter, Cassidy, but by the fall of 2005, she regained high hopes for her future. She had a wonderful teaching career, many supportive friends and family in her hometown of Waco, Texas, and two beautiful young daughters. She believed she had a wonderful husband as well. But 34-year-old minister Matt Baker was hiding a history of abuse and harassment against women for years matt had terrorized women he worked with by groping them or making sexual comments he had also made some of carrie's friends and family members uncomfortable he wasn't necessarily violent with them but when he talked to carrie's female cousins and nieces his comments were suggestive and flirtatious one of the members of matt's new church in waco soon discovered this side of him. 23-year-old Vanessa was the daughter of Larry Bulls, the music minister at Crossroads Baptist. Vanessa had been living with her parents and separating from her husband and often attended church with them. Vanessa later described herself as a strict Southern Baptist. Perhaps she saw the church minister, Matt Baker, as an unquestionable authority figure. In one of her first encounters with Matt, She was sitting alone in the church. He came over, sat next to her and commented, whoever finds you is going to be a lucky man. He told her that he often counseled people going through a divorce. He thought he might be able to help her. The exchange stuck with her. Later in December of 2005, Vanessa attended a church potluck. She was talking to friends about her divorce being finalized joking about eventually dating again. Afterwards, she found herself alone in a hallway with Matt. He asked if she'd date her pastor. He went on to say he had a vasectomy and was free of STDs, so she wouldn't have to worry. When Vanessa asked if Matt would really cheat on his wife, he told her, Carrie is clueless. The following month, Vanessa's parents left Crossroads to attend their old church in Troy. But Vanessa continued to attend services. Whereas other women had rebuffed Matt's advances, she was interested. She later said, that was a point in my life where I wasn't thinking straight. She was a single mother without a home or steady income. According to Vanessa, she wasn't exactly attracted to Matt, but felt safe with him because he was a preacher. Matt began calling her regularly at her parents' house. He said it was to offer her counseling, but he seemed to spend most of their conversations criticizing Carrie. He called her a bad mother and a cold wife. He even claimed she'd tried to kill herself once before, shortly after their daughter's death. He said she tried to take too many pills and he stopped her. Now he told Vanessa that he regretted intervening. He'd wished he'd let her kill herself so he'd be free. In early March, after weeks of speaking on the phone, Matt invited Vanessa to his house while Carrie and the girls were at school. He claimed that he was still interested in providing divorce counseling. When Vanessa got to the baker's house, Matt asked to hold her hand so they could pray together. Then he kissed her and led her to the bedroom where they had sex. If she had any regrets afterward, he used his position as a minister to soothe her. He reportedly told Vanessa, you don't need to feel bad. It doesn't matter what anyone does. Just ask God to forgive you. Carrie didn't know about Matt and Vanessa Bowles, but she sensed that something had shifted in their marriage. Matt didn't seem interested in having sex with her anymore. But when she brought it up with him, he turned the blame on her, accusing Carrie of pushing him away. Carrie couldn't understand it. She knew, despite Matt's denials, that he had changed. She didn't know why. Carrie pressed Matt to explain what was going on. Instead, he attacked her. He claimed that Carrie treated him like a butler, cook, and babysitter, rather than a husband. He cast himself as a blameless father who did everything for his little girls, while Carrie didn't give him any credit for it. He even insinuated that Carrie was partly responsible for their daughter Cassidy's death because Carrie had prayed that the girl would be free from pain. Carrie was deeply hurt by Matt's words. After that exchange, she called her mother Linda to tell her the marriage was in trouble. She thought they might be headed for divorce. Linda knew how important the relationship was to Carrie. She urged her daughter to try to make it work. Carrie pressed the phone to her ear, trying to keep herself from sobbing. She didn't know how to explain to her mother that her entire world had shattered. She'd always try to stay so positive, to present the best picture of herself, her family, and her marriage. Even after the hardship and grief, she prided herself on staying strong and optimistic. How could she face anyone now that she'd failed at the most important thing in her life? She was supposed to be a good wife, a minister's wife, loyal and encouraging. She was supposed to tend to her marriage like a garden, but she'd been careless. Now they'd forgotten why they loved each other. Carrie took a deep breath and tried to clarify her thoughts. Perhaps her mother was right. They just needed to put in the work. She had to remind Matt how much she loved him and force him to remember how he felt about her. Instead of divorce, Carrie decided that she and Matt needed to boost their sex life. Carrie told friends that they were trying to go on date nights and revive their romance, but she may have felt doubts that she didn't share with her friends or with Matt. Around this time, she wrote in the margins of her Bible, Lord, I am asking you to protect me from harm. I am not sure what is going on with Matt, but Lord help me find peace with him. In April of 2006, she visited her doctor and told him she was suffering from anxiety. She wanted a prescription for Xanax, but her doctor disagreed and prescribed her an antidepressant instead. Carrie was aggravated. She insisted that she didn't feel depressed, On her way out of the doctor's office, she ripped up the prescription slip. That afternoon, Matt drove her home from the doctor's office. At one point, they stopped at a stop sign, and Carrie opened the car door for a breath of fresh air. Matt grabbed her as if he thought she was going to jump out. Carrie laughed as she recounted the story to her family later, She seemed amused at how overprotective Matt had been, but Matt told the story differently. He said that Carrie had tried to leap from the speeding car while they were on the highway. He seemed to want everyone to think that Carrie was suicidal. Others may have seen this as a sign that Matt was worried about his wife. Only Vanessa Bowles had reason to believe otherwise. As their affair progressed, Matt became more and more bitter about his marriage. He complained to Vanessa that he was tired of Carrie. He didn't want to get divorced because it would ruin his career as a minister, but he wanted her out of his life. According to Vanessa, Matt began concocting outlandish ways to kill Carrie and get away with it. He talked about tampering with the brakes of her car, arranging a drive-by shooting or hanging her to make it look like a suicide. At the time, Vanessa thought he was exaggerating. Matt also began scouring the internet for ideas. On his work computer, he researched overdoses and prescription drugs. For years, Carrie had refused to see Matt's shortcomings, but once he started plotting her death, she finally seemed to sense that he might be dangerous. One night, she opened Matt's briefcase and found a medicine bottle filled with crushed-up pills. She asked Matt about it, and he told her that one of the troubled teenagers from the Waco Center for Youth must have hidden the pills there while he was at work. When Carrie checked again later, the bottle was gone. On Monday, April 3rd, Carrie visited a therapist, Joanne Bristol, who had helped her after Cassidy's death. She told Joanne about the ups and downs of her life, She seemed proud of her work at school and her daughter's progress, but she said that her marriage was off track. She told her therapist, I think Matt's having an affair. Then she added, I think Matt's planning to kill me. As soon as she said it, she backtracked and laughed it off. Carrie told the therapist she was being ridiculous. Matt would never hurt her. She then changed the subject to her hopes for the future. She talked about her goals. She said she wanted to spend more time with her children and work on her marriage. She left the session feeling optimistic. Though Carrie had a gut feeling that something was wrong, she ignored it. People often downplay their own instincts. According to neuroscientist and medical doctor Kyra Bobinet, when an instinct doesn't conform to our self-image, we often try to deny it. She stated, Our subconscious is constantly screening every experience and action with the question, is this me or not? We buy clothes, eat food, or post things on social media that fits the image of me, while rejecting anything that is not me, including an instinct that goes against who we think we are. Carrie's instincts told her that Matt was dangerous, But this conflicted with her image of Matt as a pious minister and of herself as his loving wife. Confronting reality would force her to admit that everything she believed about her life and marriage was a lie. That she had been ignoring the warning signs for years. She couldn't bear to admit she'd been deluding herself. So Carrie continued on as if nothing was wrong. On Friday, April 7th, Carrie had a job interview to teach at a middle school. She left feeling overjoyed. She called her mother to say it had gone well. After the interview, she went to the elementary school where she worked. She chatted with other teachers about her summer plans and discussed a party she wanted to attend that Saturday for her grandmother. She had no idea that Matt was at home on the phone with his mistress, Vanessa Bowles. Matt bitterly complained that he was depressed All he wanted was to be with Vanessa. He was tired of life getting in the way of their love. Then, Matt told her his plans for the evening. He was going to kill Carrie Baker. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of Matt Baker's story. We'll talk about Matt's deadly plot to be with his mistress and the lengthy battle to bring him to justice. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Network. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamis, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs.